0: Welcome to Come Rain or Shine, podcast of the USDA
1: Southwest Climate Hub and the Department of Interior Southwest Climate Adaptation Science Center, or Southwest CASC. I'm Sarah Leroy, Science Communications Coordinator for the Southwest CASC. And I'm Emily Elias, Director of the
0: USDA Southwest Climate Hub. Here we highlight stories to share the most recent advances in climate science, weather and climate adaptation, And
1: innovative practices to support resilient landscapes and communities. We believe that sharing some of the most forward thinking and creative climate science and adaptation will strengthen our collective ability to respond to even the most challenging impacts of climate change in one of the hottest and driest regions of the world.
2: Welcome to another episode of Come Rain or Shine. Today's topic is dust. Dust is more than just a nuisance. Airborne particulate matter can have impacts on local, regional, and even global scales and can be a hazard for health, visibility, crops, and the environment. Of course, foremost most in many people's minds right now are the air quality impacts we're seeing from wildfire smoke, but wind erosion is in some ways a more persistent problem. Today, we're with two experts on wind erosion and dust measurement monitoring and modeling, Dr. Dave Dubois, New Mexico State Climatologist, and Dr. Nick Webb, a physical scientist at the Jornada Experimental Range. Welcome. Thanks for being here.
1: Welcome, Dave and Nick. Uh, Dave, you work more on the meteorological side of things, and Nick, you've been involved with some cutting-edge wind erosion modeling work, both important aspects of this issue. Um, so Dave, maybe you could start us off with the weather side of things. You know we know wind erosion is something that fluctuates. Can you tell us how a dust storm forms and what factors dictate the intensity and duration of a dust storm?
3: Yeah, I'm glad to answer that. um so what I mean some of the ingredients you need for wind erosion, of course is are high winds um or at least very turbulent winds um and maybe Nick can talk about the other components, um you know we need very dry soils. Um, crust that, um, can break up, that can release a lot of particles, but at least on the wind side, we look at the different drivers and they, we, we can classify them. Um, and, and they depend on the time of year, um, even time of day. Um, you can get like local scale dust storms, um, from things like dry microbursts, uh, when we get really dry, um, surface, uh, area and, um, we get some really gusty winds from thunderstorm outflow, uh, and then in the springtime, um, we get the synoptic scale. You know, when cold fronts switch through the area, we can get high winds. Um, so it, it all depends on the area and, and even location to uh, proximity to mountains. Um, we get some like in the summertime, we get storms pop up, and the outflow from the thunderstorms create um, some dust locally, and they may just uh, um hit areas that are on the scale, you know, 10 to 20 kilometers, whereas the synoptic scale can cover much greater areas.
1: Great. So do you think that we might be seeing more or less of these events in the future?
3: Yeah, well, I, I think it, it depends a lot on the area geographically. In some areas, it's being driven by aridity, producing warmer um, temperatures, and, um, you know, where we get, where we've seen PM10, um, PM2.5 PM are some of the highest on when we have drought years. And you see this all over the area and looking at visibility impacts when it's drier years. years. We're also seeing trends. I know there was a um, publication in 2016 by Hand et al saying that the spring dust season shifted earlier by one or two weeks. And so there's, and there's also some studies. Um, I was, I was just looking at a, um, 2018 Harvard paper looking at, uh, looking at the SPEI, the, the, um, that's combined, uh, precipitation and evapotranspiration. And they're, they're, they're predicting an increase in fine dust, um, across the southwest. So it all depends on where you are geographically. Uh you know, some areas are going to get wetter and some areas are going to get drier. Um, but even short term, when we have drought, um, those are the times when we're going to see more, the likelihood of seeing more uh dust events, but it all depends on the the drivers so like this year is kind of an interesting you know we in terms of the summertime monsoonal we need more of those thunderstorm outflows in order to produce the dust, so it's sort of a you have to have both um drought drying conditions and the drivers to create the 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 winds so if we have, if you don't have the wind generator um then we have you know kind of a less probability of high winds and dust. So um, it, all, it really does depend. And I think there's a lot of work being done in that area. I think that's kind of right for more research.
2: Thanks, Dave. That leads me to a question that I've been thinking about. And I wonder if you have um, just one word or a phrase that describes this year's dust season, what would that be?
3: Well, for me, I would say just below par. I think just we, we didn't have, you know, I, I take a lot of pictures and uh, photography of storms and i was uh i was really hoping for a lot more and uh, you know it depends on what area of the state you're in there are a few more on the the east side of the state but where where i am here in las cruces um it was below par for for me
2: great thanks and i want to ask nick that same question there's one word or phrase that describes 2020 in terms of the dust season what would that be
4: I, I think it would be uh, disappointing heavily um, for a few reasons. I think the same reason as, as Dave, it wasn't a particularly dusty year here. Um, but also, sort of on the, the research side of things, COVID has made it extremely difficult for us to, to get out and do the field work that we need to, um, to really understand the processes and um, support the work that we're doing. Um, so, yeah.
2: Great. So, Nick, I wanted to ask you a little bit more um, about sort of the key elements of dust emission. And we know that it's not just the weather events, as Dave mentioned, um, that put dust in the air, but also where the airborne dust comes from to begin with. And I know you've been working for a while now on aeolian erosion to address the need for a generalizable, physically-based wind erosion and dust emission model. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
4: Yeah, certainly. So, um, Dave earlier mentioned the importance of, of wind and weather in driving uh, wind erosion and dust emission. And, and um, after wind, probably the most important controls are uh, how much vegetation you have on the landscape. Um, because that can directly protect the soil and um, it shelters the soil from the wind and contracts it and if it's moving around. So vegetation of course responds to land management. So we're really interested in how uh, we can develop a model that is very sensitive to changes in vegetation uh, and soil types across the landscape to predict where wind erosion and dust emission might be an issue. so for the last eight years, we've been working on an Aeolian erosion or Aero model. Uh, and our objective or, or approach with developing this model um, is to develop a tool that can both use and contribute to larger ecosystem monitoring data sets that agencies like NRCS, ELM, Forest Service, National Park Service are all collecting across uh, range rangelands and grazing lands in, in the States. Um, so, Aero uses uh, indicators from these monitoring data sets like surface soil texture, the amount of bare ground at the site, as well as information about the vegetation height and how it's sort of arranged with its spatial distribution in the landscape. And it lets us predict for each monitoring plot what the sort of fluxes or movement of sediment are. So, we can predict the horizontal flux of sediment, which is how much of sand is moving across the landscape, and that's a good indicator of site stability and instability. Uh, and we also predict what we call the size resolved gust emissions. So, we can look at particulate matter emissions like PM10 and PM2.5 that are regulated under National Ambient Air Quality Standards. So, uh, we can use monitoring data to produce sort of plot scale estimates of these fluxes of sediment. Uh, The dust emission, of course, is a good indicator of air quality, um, but it's also an indicator of the soil loss and nutrient loss from a site. Um, The idea of being able to run a model on these monitoring data sets is that it allows us to sort of value add to them to enable producers and managers to um, assess wind erosion alongside other indicators of ecosystem services. So... Often these monitoring data sets are used to look at things like biotic integrity and um, soil and site stability, wildlife habitat, that kind of thing. Uh, and we really want to be able to sort of mainstream the erosion information with these monitoring data sets so that managers consider the erosion alongside these other resource concerns.
1: Thanks, Nick. Um so, my next question is for both of you really um what other monitoring or decision s- support tools do you know of that are available to end users interested in measuring, mitigating, or managing dust emissions
3: oh uh, um there's a a lot of work being done um in using satellite imagery resolutions of satellite imagery, or you know just like. Um, your cell phone, the, the resolution and the quality are getting, uh, much better. So there's, um, a lot of more, you know, really quick advances in the, you know, not only the the technology, but the uses of the satellite imagery to, um, to assess where wind erosion is taking place. And I was looking at some of these commercial satellite, um, uh, products and they're amazing, you know, where they can, they can, they can look at individual fields and tell you exactly where in the field end erosion is taking place. Um, so that's one. And then there's, there's, um, in terms of the monitoring, we've got, um, a, a great resource in the U.S., uh, called the Improved Monitoring Network. That's basically to look at, um, uh, aerosols across, um, in the, um, not in the urban areas, but in the rural areas, uh, protected areas. And um, there's a nice, really long, uh, data set, and there's been some papers published on, uh, looking at trends, you know, and it's, and that's one of the things they're looking at is, um, you know, particularly like in the Great Plains, there's, they're seeing a, a trend in the fine dust over the uh, last 20 years. And so without that, those kind of networks, we wouldn't really be able to to sense those and um, you know be able to apply models that Nick was talking about in terms of management. So we have to know the geographic areas that we're seeing as well as the, the, the timing and how bad in terms of the trends.
4: Yeah, I think um, the air quality monitoring networks and satellites that they've just described have been a fantastic resource for, and and are continuing to improve what we have really been missing is an ability to connect how much dust is blowing around in the air to what are the conditions on the ground and, and why is it being emitted. Um, and sort of from that angle, a, a big focus of our, our work at Hornada is looking at how we can connect dust in the air to vegetation and management on the ground and One of those approaches is through the Aero model, um, and another is sort of directly interpreting the large ecological monitoring data sets that we already have available to us. Um, So a big sort of part of that is actually um, helping managers interpret the indicators that they already have about vegetation and soils uh, so that they can understand how they relate to to dust in the atmosphere. Um, One approach that we're taking to do that is, is Uh, helping to include interpretations of wind erosion in ecological site descriptions, which are used by managers across rangelands to interpret how vegetation is changing in response to management. Um, And if we can include more interpretation and information about wind erosion in that, it will help managers to identify where they can adopt conservation practices that might be appropriate for helping to reduce air quality impacts downwind
3: yeah these are real important because um we get a growing I- increased visibility in terms of the health the human health impacts from wind erosion um you know i, I was reading a paper recently looking at the uh, valley fever um extending north in terms of the endemic areas so if if we get a handle on the in like an integrated approach um we can you know help out the health community by by looking at you know uh, what are some of the um, um, the drivers and how can we manage our areas that are you know we're um, building up very close to agriculture areas when we build our um, expanding urban areas so there's, there's great need for that kind of work
2: thanks and that makes me think of some of the national monitoring networks as well and nick i know that you lead or direct the National Wind Erosion Research Network. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what that is.
4: Yes, certainly. So um, we established the National Wind Erosion Research Network in uh, 2014, uh, and it's a multi-partner effort. So it involves a number of agencies, uh, the USDA through NRCS and ARS, Uh, It's part of the ARS's long-term agro-ecosystem research network. Uh, Also, uh, Bureau of Land Management, Department of Defense, USGS, uh, the Nature Conservancy have been involved. Um, And the objective of the network uh, is really to uh, establish a set of of focused research sites that enable us to collect really detailed information about wind erosion and dust emission processes across different agro-ecosystems under different management conditions uh, and use that information to support more basic research uh, into how wind erosion and dust is responding to management in different landscapes, uh, as well as development of decision support tools like the Aero model, uh, the Wind Erosion Prediction System, or WEPS, which is widely used by NRCS to support wind erosion assessments, uh, as well as to really facilitate Collaboration on wind erosion and dust issues across the the partner agencies. Um, so we're continuing to expand the network, um, continuing to think of new research questions, and um, it's yeah, it's really exciting.
2: Thanks, Nick. Dave, did you have have anything to add?
3: Well, no. I mean, just um, you know, we dust has many other impacts. I know I, I work in an area where we look at impacts to transportation. You know, there's, there's some hot spots that we're very concerned about all over, and there's actually hot spots all over the west, western U.S. And, uh, here in New Mexico, we've been working on one on I-10 and looking at, and actually, uh, Nick has one of his network sites there, um, to help out in this endeavor to look at, um, the frequency, intensity, duration of dust storms, um, on the Lordsburg Playa and um and, and they're actively working on mitigation on that and um you know basically protect uh the, the people driving on i ten um who may may not be aware of the hazards in that area so there's a lot of work to be done to you know to increase um to make 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 the areas more resilient to extreme weather events and that that's kind of the one of the goals of our work is to is to you know provide the instrumentation knowledge and and translate that into things that uh you know like transportation departments can use uh, actively and you know use some of the tools and uh, that they that they normally use but but use it more smartly in terms of providing the what you know how do we warn people and i mean there's a, there's a social part as well that we need to be uh, thinking about it's not only just uh, the physical science but there's how do we behave and manage and conduct their lives a little safer when there's these, these events that occur.
2: Thanks, Dave.
0: And that actually reminds me of the dust mitigation handbook that both you and Nick contributed to and how that links with agricultural producers and provides them with some options for um, trying to minimize dust emissions and wind erosion from their lands. And it also makes me think of a recently published article in Geophysical Research Letters that links dust impacts with rapid agricultural expansion in the Great Plains. The authors of that article state that throughout the U.S. Great Plains, satellite data combined with surface networks have shown a significant increase in airborne dust over the last two decades. And this airborne dust is negatively influencing both human health and visibility, and it coincides with these increases in agricultural production. And so I wonder, do you think that we're entering into a dustier future? And if so, besides the dust mitigation handbook, what can land managers do?
5: With, um, you know, with drought becoming more frequent and, there are actually hotter droughts than they used to be, like the 50s droughts. And so so we're stressing not only the the, light, the evaporation from just the temperatures, but, um, you know, the evapotranspiration is a big big deal. I, I know that um, we, we're seeing it this year um, with, you know, in New Mexico, August was like the hottest on record. And uh, we're, we're seeing the evapotranspiration, you know, stress to plants, um, very high. Um, So there's the natural and the, you know, human induced changes, but there's also the social part that, you know, that we're dealing with drought and, um, you know, fallow agricultural areas, you know, so there's decision-making going on that, um, you know, that are, may not be anticipated. Um, You know, we're seeing those in other places, you know, where there's lack of of irrigation. So um, some people can afford to pump water out of the, uh, out of groundwater and some can't. And so there, that that um, produces a, a dust source, and we're seeing that in Mexico. You know, a lot of the dust that we get here in southern New Mexico is from um, Chihuahua. And so, um, so it's not only the U.S. decision making, but international is is big deal. So, um, you know, I think the the risk is high in terms of um, in the future to to look at. Um, I, I, I've you know, talked around with my colleagues. You know, iridification as one of the words that we we talked uh, a lot about in terms of drying of the uh, the whole um, water basin, and you know, and even the you know the end um, product. You know, desertification is even being brought up um, and you know and talked about because it's it's happened before, and it's you know in China we've seen that. Occur and uh, where they had to. Re- I mean, they've they took over entire s- towns and desertified it. And you know, we in looking back and learning from those, how can we manage um, our systems and not get to that point? You know, I think we've got a lot of history and uh, knowledge, and you know, things that Nick's been working on are are, are really going to transform our our look at things. But we have to use them, and has to get to the decision makers in order to to make it so that. You know, even, it does, even if it does get more dustier, and it's likely, um, but we have to be able to manage and become more resilient and uh, adapt to these changes, so that uh, we don't really see the impacts that we're. I hope these papers are wrong. <laughs> That's kind of my goal. Is um, but we we we're, we're seeing the you know getting a, a glimpse of the future, and we have to we have to make those course corrections now, before we we see them. We can't wait until we see them and do these things.
4: Yeah, I think a, a lot of the management options that might be available to producers are going to become diff- more and more difficult to implement under hotter and drier droughts. So probably the most effective strategy an anticipatory strategy is to ensure that we really maintain our land in a healthy, productive condition now and avoid the sorts of state changes that we might regard as desertification. Um, that That's... Perhaps easier said than done in some areas. I think in rangelands that means, you know, taking whatever measures we can to ensure that we maintain our perennial grass cover where we can um, or avoid transitions of our landscapes to more degraded states, losing our grasses perhaps that could increase excel- uh, or accelerate wind erosion and and further perpetuate those changes. Um, that's a, a big issue here in the Chihuahuan Desert um, I think in croplands, um, I mean, the most basic way to control wind erosion is to maintain surface cover. So in, in some cases that may be achievable through some minor changes to practices. Uh, in other cases it, it may mean looking at alternative crop varieties and that kind of thing that enable us to maintain ground cover at critical times of the year when it's windy. Um, I think sort of, In in all of this, um, what's going to be really important is us as scientists and and the agencies equipping managers with the information that they need to um, make informed decisions. Um, We really still know fairly little about which landscapes are eroding in the US, when, why, and how much, and really building that sort of knowledge base or understanding of what's going on uh, is going to be important. And then getting that information out to managers along with tools that help them interpret wind erosion information to support decisions is going to be really critical.
1: Thanks, Nick. That's, a, that's an excellent thought. Um, and I just want to open it up to both of you if you have any other final thoughts before we wrap this podcast. I'll take that as a no. <laughs> Well, I think that's a great point to end on, anyways, Nick. So we appreciate both of you being here with us today. And yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Come Rain or Shine, podcast of the USDA Southwest Climate Hub and the DOI Southwest Climate Adaptation Science Center. If you liked this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, like, or follow for more great episodes. If you want more information, have any questions for the speakers, or would like to offer feedback, please visit climatehubs.usda.gov or swcasc.arizona.edu. Our sincere thanks
0: to USDA Agricultural Research Service, the Sustainable Southwest Beef Project and the U.S. Geological Survey for supporting this podcast.